0: Some Very Famous People you've never really heard of and may barely recognize. This podcast contains bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky, all presented in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. At the conclusion of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject. Billy Holiday.
1: can get started with you
0: Now let's get started with our story about Billie Holiday. Sometimes the most remarkable artistic genius can emerge from the humblest of beginnings. Sarah Julia Harris was born on August 16, 1895 in Baltimore, Maryland. Disowned by her father, she was raised by her mother, who ultimately married another man and had two more children. Like her siblings, Sarah, nicknamed Sadie, began working at cleaning jobs at an early age. A lack of education rendered her virtually illiterate. She was employed on the railroad trains that operated between Baltimore and Philadelphia. When she became pregnant at age 19, she was kicked out of her family's home and fired from her job. With few options, she agreed to be admitted into the Philadelphia General Hospital, performing menial tasks in exchange for shelter and care. Her child was born on April 7, 1915. This child had several versions of her first name listed on official documents, various approximations of the name Eleonora. Although she started life as Eleonora Harris, eventually the world would come to know this illegitimate daughter of an unemployed domestic by a different name, Billie Holiday. Childhood was a rather unhappy experience for the young Eleonora. She would be shunted off by her mother onto a succession of relatives. Eventually, both mother and daughter settled with a half-sister and her husband in Baltimore. Eleonora's biological father, Clarence Holliday, would be drafted into the Army during World War I. And while he occasionally visited the two of them, he never married Sadie, who eventually married another man. This brief marriage did not provide any stability for Eleonora, who would continue to be raised by distant relatives referred to as an aunt or even grandmother, regardless of the actual family connection. A complete lack of continuity and stability during her early years had a profound effect on the young girl, who became withdrawn and rebellious. At the age of 10, chronic truancy ultimately caused the legal system to commit her to a Catholic girls' institution, a, quote, house for colored girls, unquote, run by nuns and priests. She would spend approximately a year at this orphanage before being paroled back into the care of her mother, who had opened a modest restaurant. Both Sadie and Eleonora worked long hours, and it was during this time period that the fifth grader essentially dropped out of school. Clearly, her mother was not the most responsible of parents. Returning home on December 24, 1926, in the early morning hours, after spending the evening socializing with a male friend, Sadie walked in on a neighbor having sex with her daughter. The neighbor was arrested and eventually convicted of rape, carnal knowledge of a 14- to 16-year-old, despite legal awareness of Eleonora's actual age. The individual got 90 days in jail, and Eleonora got sent back to the same Catholic orphanage. After a few months, she was again released in the guardianship of her mother, who was still operating the restaurant. This establishment was in the vicinity of Baltimore's Black Nightlife District, and it brought Eleonora into contact with a fast crowd. She soon began earning tips, running errands for the madam of a bordello. It was in this location that Eleonora would first be exposed to jazz. Later, she would say her favorite song from this time period was West End Blues by Louis Armstrong. She was 13 years old. By 1929, Sadie had moved to Harlem, and eventually Eleonora came to live with her. Within a short period of time, both of them were arrested in a house of prostitution. Although she was only 14, Eleonora was sentenced to 100 days in a workhouse, a typical sentence for such an offense. When she emerged, her mother had arranged for an apartment in Brooklyn and was working as a domestic, but Eleonora was no longer interested in that kind of work. She had developed a small repertoire of popular songs that she had copied from the many phonograph records she listened to, and it was her aim to try her hand as a singer. With a neighbor who could play the saxophone, she began to perform in small clubs in Queens and Brooklyn for tips contributed by the audience. Understanding that her legal name didn't exactly roll off the tongue, she came up with a new stage name. Billy came from Billy Dove, the famous silent movie actress. Holiday came from her father, Clarence Holiday. These singing stints came to an end when her mother found work at a Harlem club and restaurant called Mexico's. Mexico's on 133rd Street was one of many popular clubs situated in the middle of Harlem's nightlife, and Billy was hired as a waitress who would also sing for individual customers. This quickly led to auditions at other clubs in the vicinity. Billy would spend the next three years listening to live music, socializing with other musicians, and seizing every opportunity to perform. She would quickly make an impression upon Harlem's musical community, and by 1933 she would be singing at a club called Coven's. It was here that the record producer John Hammond would hear Billie Holiday for the first time. John Hammond became a legend in the music business by repeatedly demonstrating a remarkable ability to find and develop some of the biggest stars in the history of recorded music. Hammond was not what one might expect to be haunting the Harlem jazz world. His father was a graduate of Yale and Columbia Law School, and his mother was a Vanderbilt. From a young age, Hammond studied and performed music. He also enrolled at Yale, but felt alienated by the school's atmosphere and was more comfortable in the clubs and music venues of New York City. He especially gravitated towards jazz before the genre gained wide public acceptance. He dropped out of college and started working as a correspondent for the British music publication Melody Maker, With America in the throes of the Depression, Hammond also made a deal with the faltering Columbia Records label to record jazz musicians for release on Columbia's British label. Hammond would figure prominently in the careers of Benny Goodman, Lionel Hampton, Pete Seeger, Aretha Franklin, Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, Bruce Springsteen, and many others. When he first heard the 17-year-old Billie Holiday, Hammond was enthralled and quickly set up a recording session with another relatively unknown musician, Benny Goodman. These sessions would produce two songs, Your Mother's Son-in-Law and Riffin' the Scotch. The latter sold reasonably well, a stunning career development for an 18-year-old with no formal musical training. The Great Depression had a tremendous effect on the record industry. Such purchases were now considered a luxury that most households could not afford. But demand for phonograph records would eventually increase with the advent of the jukebox, which became popular in barrooms, diners, and cafes during the mid-30s. The majority of records manufactured in the 30s and 40s went directly into jukeboxes. Many record companies like Columbia that had been driven into bankruptcy survived by making distribution deals with the jukebox industry. Still, the environment for musicians during this time period would remain competitive and economically challenging. It would be two years before Billie Holiday would record again but she continued to appear in some prominent venues, including the Apollo Theater in November of 1934. She also appeared in a short Duke Ellington film for Paramount Pictures entitled Symphony in Black, in which she sang a song entitled Saddest Tale, The Lament of a Jilted Lover. Ellington had encouraged Billy to develop a clear persona or theme for her music, and this theme of heartache and loss would be established very early in Billie Holiday's career. In July of 1935, John Hammond put together another recording session with various musicians, including Benny Goodman and pianist Teddy Wilson. This session would yield two Billy Holiday standards, What a Little Moonlight Can Do and Miss Brown to You. Both of these songs were released on the Brunswick label, a subsidiary of Columbia, with Hammond putting together a 12-month deal centered around Teddy Wilson. Billy would provide vocals for a variety of other musicians, and while these songs would achieve popularity and sell reasonably well, at the time they did little to raise her profile in the industry. She did well enough to get her own recording deal via Brunswick on Vocalion, another Columbia subsidiary. During this time period, Billy would also come into contact with her father, who actually was a professional musician playing throughout the Midwest with Count Basie's band. Clarence Holiday, a guitarist, had successfully carved out a career in the music business, performing in various jazz recording sessions. Still only in his mid-30s, he and his daughter would meet on occasion, and he would even play on at least one of her recording sessions. But there was never a close relationship. Clarence Holiday would die on February 23, 1937, of influenza while on tour in Texas. In her ghostwritten and controversial autobiography, Lady Sings the Blues, Billy claimed that her father's condition worsened because he had to wait for treatment in a veterans facility that would admit an African American. Clarence Holiday was 38 years old. In May of 1937, Billy began a recording association with a band that included tenor saxophonist Lester Young. For 4 years, this band would record and produce some of the most notable music of Billy Holiday's career. Some of the songs recorded during this time period were Me Myself and I. He's funny that way. When You're Smiling, You Go to My Head, The Very Thought of You, and many more songs that would ultimately achieve great popularity. Young would also bestow the practically eponymous nickname Lady Day. But Billy's career and public persona had not yet achieved the stature of other black female vocalists like Lena Horne and Ella Fitzgerald. Part of this had to do with Billy's vocal style and song selection that focused on slower, bluesier renditions of traditional songs. Part of her difficulties also stemmed from her reputation, even from an early point in her career, to be unreliable and unpleasant due to alcohol and marijuana use. Within the jazz world of the 30s, marijuana was commonplace and Billy was known to indulge even before recording sessions. This indulgence over time soured her formerly positive relationship with John Hammond, who creatively parted ways with Billy in early 1939. Hammond did Billy one last favor when, in December 1938, a businessman named Barney Josephson decided to open a club called Cafe Society in Greenwich Village that would focus on live jazz josephson turned over the booking responsibilities to john hammond and hammond brought in billy as the club's first featured attraction the club was meant to be a spoof of the snobby spots frequented by midtown manhattan's high society and celebrities it was also the first fully integrated club in the city of new york cafe society was an immediate sensation and billy not as well known south of harlem got a great opportunity to perform in a more high-profile establishment it was a far cry from a previous gig with Artie Shaw in a midtown hotel that she quit when the hotel insisted that she enter through a rear service entrance. She also had complete control over her set list and presentation, and she continued underlining the character theme of someone unlucky in love. During this time period, she would also be presented with a song that would transcend the frequently frivolous world of popular music. A New Yorker and teacher by the name of Abel Mirapol was deeply disturbed by a 1930 photograph of a lynching of two black men in Indiana. Under the pen name Lewis Allen, he composed a poem entitled Bitter Fruit that was published in a union publication, the New York Teacher Magazine, in January 1937. Written to raise awareness about this violent practice and prompt federal legislation, Mirapol then set the poem to music and changed the title to Strange Fruit. While the direct route has never been specifically documented, eventually the composition made its way to Barney Josephson and Billie Holiday. The song, which uses specific images of black lynching victims hanging from trees, became the finale of every set that Billie performed at Cafe Society. The house lights would be turned off, a single spotlight would highlight Billie's face, and all activity by waitstaff would cease. Slowly, she would vocalize lyrics that never failed to elicit shock.
1: Southern trees Bear a strange fruit Blood on the leaves And blood at the root Black bodies swinging In the southern breeze Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees
0: At the song's conclusion, there would be no encore. Billy would leave the stage, and the audience typically would sit in stunned silence until bursting into prolonged applause. In the same year, 1939, that Marian Anderson was prevented from singing at Constitution Hall in the nation's capital, the performance of this song by an African-American in an integrated nightclub was a culturally astounding assault on the nationally prevalent practice of segregation. The song was not universally well-received. In fact, in 1940, Mirapol would be investigated by the FBI for alleged communist sympathies, Initially, both Columbia and John Hammond refused to help Billy record the song, the record company afraid of a commercial backlash, especially in the Deep South. Hammond thought the lyrics were mediocre. Billy had to go to a jazz novelty label, Commodore Records, to get Strange Fruit on vinyl. Bringing her backing band from Cafe Society, she recorded Strange Fruit on April 20, 1939, Initially, the B-side, Fine and Mellow, was more popular, but over time, Strange Fruit became most identified with Billie Holiday and changed the course of her career. Unlike the typical standard that would be immediately recorded by other artists, it would be three decades before any other popular artist attempted another rendition. Strange Fruit would also generate additional personal controversy for Billie Holiday for many years. When her autobiography, Lady Sings the Blues, intimated that it was Billie who was chiefly responsible for the song's arrangement, Mirapol publicly demanded that the publisher, Doubleday, correct this attribution under pain of legal action. Billie attempted to minimize the controversy by famously stating that she never even read the book and certainly didn't write it. Mirapol would also be involved with another high profile 20th century historical event. When Ethel and Julius Rosenberg were executed for espionage in 1953, it was Mirapol and his wife who stepped forward and agreed to raise the Rosenbergs' two young sons. Billy would continue working at Cafe Society until August 1939. Barney Josephson described her personality in an interview in 1979. She did what she liked. If a man she liked came up, she'd go with him. If a woman, the same thing. If she was handed a drink, she'd drink it. If you had a stick of pot, she'd take a cab ride on her break and smoke it. If you had something stronger, she'd use that. That was her way. She didn't apologize for it, and she didn't feel ashamed. All she wanted was to have fun in whatever way it struck her. She was sensitive. She was proud. She had a real zest for life. As a performer, she could make you fall in love. She could break your heart. That was her life. There was no other person on the face of this earth who was like her. Billie Holiday was a single addition. For all the adulation, Josephson paid Billy $75 a week, roughly what she would have been paid in a club in Harlem. Billie Holiday's zest for life frequently would veer off into self-destructive directions. She had many emotional involvements with men throughout the 30s, but ultimately decided to marry one James Jimmy Monroe on August 25, 1941, the brother of a prominent Harlem club owner. Typically, Monroe was physically abusive, described occupationally as a sportsman, a period euphemism for someone who hustled to get by, had no real legitimate income of his own, and is rumored to have introduced Billie Holiday to heroin and opium abuse. But he was quite good-looking. Another landmark song created by Billie occurred almost haphazardly when, while casually brainstorming ideas with the songwriter Arthur Herzog, she started recounting an argument about her mother, who wanted money to open an after-hours club and restaurant. Billy offhandedly used the expression, God bless the child, meaning thank God for someone who can get along relying on themselves. Twenty minutes later, Herzog and Billy had composed another one of her most memorable songs. It was also one of the final recordings she would make for Columbia. Her contract would not be renewed. The seven-year period of recordings from 1935 until 1942 for the label are considered by some to be her best and most defining material. But a reputation as well as a labor dispute between the American Federation of Musicians and the record industry precluded another long-term deal for one of the most high-profile performers of this time period. ¶¶ Billy's financial situation did not improve with the arrest of her husband in May of 1942 in California on drug smuggling charges. Between her mother, a retinue of hangers-on, and Jimmy Monroe's legal defense, she was living on whatever money she could generate from nightclub dates. Despite her efforts, Monroe was convicted and received a one-year prison sentence. By the time he emerged, their relationship would be over. But like many within the jazz world, Billy would succumb to hardcore drug abuse during this time period. It is estimated that 50% of jazz musicians had experience with heroin. A third had serious habits, and 20% would ultimately die from their addiction. Fortunately, addiction had not yet seriously diminished her talent. Performing mostly in New York, her trademark gardenia in her hair, 1943 and 1944, would be the high point of her live career. Finally, she would sign another recording deal with Decca and get back into the studio, Lover Man and Good Morning Heartache being two of the more notable recordings from this time period. Unfortunately, she would also begin a relationship with Joe Guy, a Sessions trumpet musician who gained access by supplying her with narcotics. It is also during this time period that she began using heroin intravenously. Besides charging exorbitant rates for dope, Guy also came up with the idea of touring with a big band-style lineup, an extremely expensive proposition bankrolled by Billy, of course. It was while she was on tour with Guy's band that she received the news that her mother had died. The death of Sadie Fagan was a pivotal moment for her daughter. Although her relationship with her mother was contentious, Sadie was the only real family bond that she had. Sadie's death caused Billy to sink into a depression that was marked by heavy alcohol and heroin abuse. She would be racked by a fear of loneliness and remain in dysfunctional relationships that were marked by exploitation and destructive behavior. This behavior would come to public attention when Billy Holiday and Joe Guy were arrested by federal narcotics agents in New York City for possession of heroin. Drugs and hypodermic needles were found in the search of a room that both individuals had occupied in Philadelphia. Despite a flimsy case, Billy disdained legal advice and pled guilty and was sentenced to a year and a day in a federal reformatory in Alderston, Virginia. Typically, Joe Guy obtained legal representation and was found not guilty. Although there is some indication that Billy deliberately wanted to be incarcerated in an attempt to clean herself up, the arrest and conviction would have an extremely negative effect on her career. She went through withdrawal and completed her sentence without incident, although her manager, Joe Glazier, ignored her while she was incarcerated and refused to even send accounting statements of her earnings. Despite advice to seek new management upon her release in March of 1948, Billy stuck with Glazer, who immediately booked her into Carnegie Hall. Demand for tickets set a record. All 2,700 seats were immediately purchased. A second April show was also a great success. Unfortunately, her felony conviction meant that Billy could not obtain a cabaret card, which entitled her to perform in New York clubs where alcohol was served. This requirement actually grew out of a federal attempt to ban communist sympathizers from the restaurant business, but eventually was used against musicians convicted of drug offenses. Ultimately, the arbitrary nature of the system was underlined when Billy was able to obtain a new card through the intervention of a shady club owner named John Levy, who was well-connected. Despite her legal problems and her lack of any recently recorded hits, Billy remained immensely popular. ¶¶
1: You go to my head and you linger like a haunting refrain and I find you spinning round in my brain like the bubbles in a glass of champagne you Go to my head like a ship of sparkling burgundy brew, and I find the very mention of you like the kicker
0: in a julep or two. Her persona, which had been that of someone unlucky in love, was now changing towards someone unlucky in life. It didn't take long for her to lapse back into addiction, which became the cause of canceled recording sessions and missed concert dates. If she did show up, she would seem disinterested, would play a short set, and disappear. Clearly, her lifestyle was beginning to affect her performance. John Levy would exploit his cabaret card success to gain access to personal management of Billy and her finances. Levy, who dabbled in all sorts of business ventures that included pimping and bookmaking, took care of Billy's personal expenses but pocketed the substantial performance fees for himself. Billy was so naive that if she paid for a meal with a $100 bill, she would not be able to determine if her change was appropriate. She was the perfect mark for a domineering, unscrupulous character like Levy. Predictably, Levy and Billy also became romantically involved. It was probably not a coincidence that Holliday would be arrested twice in January of 1949, once for a violent altercation in a Los Angeles club in which Levy stabbed another participant, and in San Francisco at the end of the month for narcotics possession. The drug possession charges were eventually dropped against Levy, and Billy would eventually be found not guilty. At the trial, she appeared with one eye prominently blackened. After 18 months of degradation, theft of her earnings, and bills run up in her name, Billy wisely extricated herself from this relationship, both professionally and personally. Her situation was not improved by Decca's decision not to renew her contract when it was up for renewal in 1950. When no other major label expressed interest, she wound up on the second-rate Aladdin, her recent arrests again limited her ability to get a cabaret card on the East Coast, so she spent more time on the road, especially on the West Coast. Eventually, she would sign a recording contract with impresario Norman Granz, who would ultimately combine several labels into Verve, a major jazz label from the 50s and 60s. This would be the third and last major label deal of her career. She would also renew acquaintances with a Detroit auto worker, Louis McKay. Despite the fact that McKay was married with two children, he left his wife with the proviso that Billy clean up her drug habit. This she seems to have done, but the repeated bruises and black eyes prevalent during their relationship indicates that the two were far from living happily ever after. It has been said that the attraction to McKay was the result of him being one of the few men in her life who was tougher than she was. In 1954, Billy would tour Europe for the first time. In fact, she needed to get a passport for the trip, as she had never been out of the States before her tour would include sweden germany the netherlands france and the united kingdom including stops in paris and the royal albert hall a concert that billy recalled as one of the greatest of her life critical response was generally quite positive she would return to the states and the newport jazz festival reuniting on stage with her former collaborator lester young their estrangement centering around young's disapproval of her drug habit by now, McKay was firmly in control of her finances, buying property with her money but putting it into his own name, claiming falsely that because she had a record, this was legally necessary. McKay did get the inspiration to assemble an autobiography, although Billy's fifth grade education meant that this would have to be a collaboration from the outset. An acquaintance who got along reasonably well with Billy, a New York Post writer by the name of William Dufty, convinced both McKay and Billy that he would be able to come up with an approach that would also be marketable to Hollywood. Essentially, the book that was ultimately published consisted of spoken reminiscings from Billy that Dufty placed in chronological order and polished to some degree. It would not hit the streets until 1956, chiefly because of threats of litigation from various individuals who either didn't want to be associated with the book or didn't like Billy's version of events. By 1955, Billy Holiday was again recording regularly on Verve, but decades of various forms of substance abuse, including heavy drinking and smoking, had taken its toll on her voice. Her sound was huskier and no longer the light instrument of the 30s and 40s. Although initially Louis McKay tried to rein in this problem, clearly he not only failed, he got caught up in drug use himself. Both Billy and McKay would be arrested in Philadelphia in February of 1956. Among their contraband, syringes, a half ounce of cocaine, and an ounce and a half of heroin. Possibly fearing that they might be required to testify against each other, McKay married Billy later that year. The summer of 1956 also brought the release of Lady Sings the Blues, a remarkably frank book that was compelling but also has been ridiculed as disjointed and factually incorrect. Considering that the book starts with, quote, Mom and Pop were just a couple of kids when they got married. He was 18, she was 16, and I was three, unquote, and that her father had never married her mother, one has to be skeptical of this material. Billy's professional deterioration continued with an appearance at the Newport Jazz Festival in 1957. Her performance was released on an album entitled Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday at Newport. Her thin voice cracked, and her vocalizing was becoming closer to speaking as opposed to singing. The album would be her last on Verve. Her condition was not helped by the fact that her relationship with Lewis McKay had fallen apart. McKay had been supplanted by an unscrupulously enterprising attorney named Earl Zydens, who manipulated Billy with cash and narcotics and undermined McKay and Billy's relationship. McKay left for the West Coast and said he would not return until Billy cleaned herself up. In addition to being unethical, Zydens added insult to injury by knowing very little about the music business. But Billy Holiday was too dependent and too exhausted to function rationally. When a European tour collapsed in 1958, she was forced to raise Plainfair home by singing in a small Paris club. Zidens was unwilling or unable to recover the amount of her fee of $10,000, even though it was bonded through the American Guild of Variety Artists. 1958 also brought the landmark album Lady in Satin. Critical reaction to this effort has always been contradictory. Some, familiar with Billy's current lot in life, were complimentary, citing the world-weary emotion that is evident throughout these standard ballads of love and loss. But the overwhelming orchestration, the hoarse vocals weakened by excess, and the dirge-like, plodding style of each song underlines a performer who is clearly past their prime. Lady in Satin is an important document of the deterioration of a great talent that is unmistakable in every selection. Billy would be reunited with McKay at their Philadelphia narcotics trial, a proceeding that resulted in a sentence of 12 months of probation. McKay would make it clear that he would not be returning with her to New York. With money extremely tight, Billy moved to a small apartment on West 87th Street that would be her last home in New York City. Here she lived with a pet chihuahua as her only companion. To a friend she confided, "'I'm so goddamn lonely. "'Since Lewis and I broke up, I got nobody, nothing.'" Although her name and reputation could still get her bookings at such prestigious venues as the Monterey Jazz Festival and the famous Les Blue Note in Paris, Billie's heavy alcohol consumption made any live performance practically a walkthrough of the same songs she had been performing live for decades. Billie Holiday had not varied her set list for many years, observers believing her ability to reproduce her most familiar songs despite her intoxication, the reason for this lack of variety. Now, even walking on stage was a major adventure. Her friend and musical accompanist, Lester Young, died in March of 1959 of alcoholism, the sax player having been in a slow decline for much of the 50s. Although she would continue to perform throughout 1959, Billy also began rapidly losing weight, wasting away to less than 100 pounds, and she needed assistance getting on stage. She repeatedly refused to be hospitalized, determined to keep working to pay the bills. Finally, a May 30th collapse precipitated her admission to Metropolitan Hospital. Despite her physical situation and relative seclusion, she was still being supplied with heroin, and when a nurse spotted some contraband white powder in a Kleenex box, Billy was arrested and threatened with incarceration. It took a court order to remove a police guard from her room, and prosecution was held in abeyance until Billy was deemed well enough to appear in court. She never made it. Billy Holiday died on July 17, 1959, of cirrhosis of the liver, lung congestion, and heart failure. Lady Day, was 44 years old. Legend has it that in her last days, Billie Holiday's only worldly asset was several hundred dollars' worth of cash that she had taped to her leg. She had subsisted in her last years by taking advances against her royalty accounts, selling her valuables, and borrowing money from music business associates. Of course, Louis McKay denied that she had any other savings or assets. At the time of her death, most of her records were no longer in release, and she was seldom heard on the radio. Despite a funeral attended by over 3,000 people, her grave remained unmarked for over a year. Eventually, Louis McKay would bury her and her mother in the same plot at St. Raymond's Cemetery in the Bronx and charge the cost of the headstone to her estate, which, as her husband, he inherited. Over time, interest in her music and the release of the historically laughable Diana Ross film vehicle, Lady Sings the Blues, would help generate great interest not only in her remarkable catalog of music, but in her life Today she is a fixture in the pantheon of American musical artists who died sensationally way before their time. Luckily, her body of work can never be eclipsed by the considerable tragedy of her childhood and the constant exploitation and self-destruction that became her existence.
1: You'd better go now Because I like you much too much You have a way with you You'd better go now Because I like you very much The night was gay
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast about Billie Holiday. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Billie Holiday by Stuart Nicholson, Billie Holiday, Wishing on the Moon by Donald Clark, and Billie Holiday, the Musician and the Myth by John Zwed. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also, rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.
1: You'd better go now. You'd better go. Much too much